Um, what we're going to do, we have two weeks left uh, talking through our core values and mission and vision as a community. Uh, we're packaging this called Discover Praxis. And so all these teachings are online, and we have a couple left just to hammer through some of the core values that we hold as a community. Again, a little pre- precursor this morning. You've probably heard some of this, but that's okay, right? <laughs> Right? That's all right. Yeah. Um, uh, we're just going to kind of, I think over the next two weeks, talk about some things that we have definitely drilled down on before. But the hope of this is, at the end of this, is Discover Praxis will be actually something that we ask everybody to journey through if they want to be a member. We're going to open up membership in a couple weeks if you'd like to be a member at Praxis, which is amazing and will help lead you through that. But one of the things we're asking before anybody becomes a member or volunteers, just so everybody's on the same page, is just go through these so you know what you're getting yourself into. Right? It's good. But if you have a Bible and you want to join in, uh, flip on your phone, some of the text will be on the screen. But if you want to open your Bible or your phone, we're going to be in Luke 22. And then if you want to put your thumb there, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's do this. No big intro this morning. No fancy intro. Let's read the scripture, shall we? Let's do it. Luke 22. This is Jesus going to the cross. And this is his last supper with his apprentices or his disciples that he's called to himself. And it says this, if you look down at verse 14, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. I gotta say, I love Jesus. Anybody? Anybody with that? Just awesome. It sticks out. Anyways, verse 15, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, the, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand on him who is going to betray me is with me on the table. The Son of Man will go, as, uh, the Son of Man go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Then you flip over to... 1 Corinthians 11, now Jesus has gone into the grave, resurrected, defeated sin and death forever. And in the ancient Mediterranean, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and renew the world. And how it's happening is so unexpected. Instead of through power or the sword or going into the world and destroying others in the name of your particular religion or ideology, these little Jesus communities begin to pop up all over the place in the ancient Mediterranean. Little house churches, and we know for sure in Corinth that this was a house church. And Paul, one of the leaders over this church, is actually writing letters back and forth to them because they have a lot of questions. Anybody have questions here? Am I the only one? I think there's a few questions in this place. I don't know about you, but I think actually being a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus, probably the number one thing you're drawn into is a lot of questions. And so you've got to imagine this first century community trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Most of them not Jewish. 
having the ancient Jewish scriptures that kind of help lead them. But you've got to understand as a Gentile in the first century world trying to sort this out, if you feel like it's hard sorting it out now, just think about them. And so they have all these questions, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your gatherings together, do more harm than good. Just pause there. Like imagine somebody writing us a letter and saying, hey, what you do when you get together on Sunday mornings or in your midweek community does more harm than good. Feel the weight of that. Verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. And then Paul says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Can we just say that? Say bread? Bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this wherever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The story of God's people from Genesis all the way into the New Testament is a story of people of bread. And oftentimes we don't, we don't catch this. There's something lost, and some of you guys come from different cultures where a meal together is like deep and weighty and something that you do within your family or culture that holds weight. But I think in North America, we've lost this over the last number of years. But bread has always been central to the people of God. A guy named Wolfgang Vondi. If you need a baby name, there's a name for you. Wolfgang or Vondi, one or the other. He puts it like this. He says, the expression to eat bread meant to share a meal. So when you, even in your English kind of versions of the scripture, when you read eat bread, it meant to share a meal, not only for the sake of eating, but in the sense of coming together and associating with one another. In the Hebrew culture, an invitation to eat bread was synonymous with an invitation to enter into relationship and to join a fellowship of people. Bread has, and you know, we've talked lots about this in the history of our, our community. Bread is always an instrument of human fellowship. Actually, the word company or companion, you know, the, the, the English word companion, it basically derives from a Latin phrase that's broken down. Together, com, or bread, pani, right? Company or companion literally in its meaning means bread together. Bread together. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the history of Israel, it's so funny, because you know this epic story, especially if you've seen like Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, you know, this law-giving story in Exodus, but as well, we know that um, Moses, this prophet, takes Israel out of oppression under a guy named Pharaoh, 
Israel, this people is in, in slavery for 400 years, and God actually delivers them and takes them out. And one of the things that if you look at the history and the story of Israel is that God begins to shape this community, certainly by putting a law around them. But it's interesting. Through the Passover, what did God actually instruct Israel to do and how they're to remember this great deliverance from Egypt? Anybody know? It wasn't, it wasn't a big speech every year. It, it wasn't a PowerPoint presentation. What was it? A meal. The way in which Israel every year over and over remembered the goodness of God and the, the, the taking them out of this oppression in slavery under Pharaoh was a meal. And guys, I honestly, I do not think that that is an accident. Every year they would get, anybody had a Passover Seder before? Some of you guys have had Passover Seders. And even now, if you go to the Upper East Side in Manhattan at Passover, you would take this and have this meal together as a remembrance. And God actually hands this down all, all throughout the law. Exodus 12, here's one example. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, God says to the people, because it is on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you're to eat, uh, to eat bread, there it is again, made without yeast, from the beginning of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your house, and anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. You think there's a point being made here? Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. And so this instruction for Passover and the yeast thing actually is important because it was a sign to Israel to remove the sin from their homes. But if you know anything about yeast as well, it, what does it do? I'm not a baker, right? If in the ancient world, yeast actually made bread rise. And the story from the first Passover was that you don't put yeast in your bread because you eat this meal with your sandals on and your rod in hand because you are getting the heck out of here. God is going to take you out. That's Hebrew, right? Uh, that's the Hebrew translation. Get the heck out of here, right? In the Old Testament. God is making it very clear to these people to remove the leaven from their community. And now over and over, there's this picture that this beautiful celebration of Passover was not just one day. It was a number of days in the celebration. But the central moment of that, that celebration was when the community got to, together, the families got together, and they ate a meal together. So every action in this Hebrew community is their identity as God's people. Ultimately, these little actions of eating a meal together showcased to the world that they were God's people. This was the hope that God had for them. So this Passover meal was instituted for Israel as a way of remembering God's act and just reminding them year after year, day after day, who they are, their identity as God's people. And it held great significance, and you know this if you've taken this meal and had a Seder, that each little piece of the meal had its symbolism and significance in how they were to practice this. So then, you hanging with me? A little bit of theology before we get to the practical stuff and what this means for us. Then you get to Jesus. The Passover, this is not in a vacuum, and this is why... From Genesis to Revelation, we have this whole, the whole scripture flowing and working together because Jesus 
the Passover was actually something that shaped the life of Jesus. It is no surprise. Like sometimes we look at the, the unfolding of Passion Week in the, the New Testament and the gospel narratives and we look at how it all comes together. But it's no surprise that Jesus is celebrating Passover with his brothers, with his disciples. Why? Because he was a Jewish dude. And every year you would get together with those that were close to you and you would take the Passover meal together. So it's not like we sh- when we read it, we shouldn't go, oh my goodness, what is Jesus doing? It's all lining up. God is intersecting everything, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus with this cultural moment in the life and the history of Israel. And it's no surprise that on that evening, Jesus was eating with his brothers. And on that evening, something now in this particular Passover that they're about to eat that we just read in the text, something is going to change forever. At the Last Supper, what we just read there, Jesus would institute what was known as the Lord's Supper, which now would be seen in its context, like in a place like Corinth, as the new Passover. So you following me? Jesus actually left instruction for his followers at the Last Supper that now the way in which the Jesus community that follows him, all his apprentices, when they get together, they would take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is not just a reminder of deliverance out from under Pharaoh in Egypt, but it's now this greater picture every time that the Jesus community takes the Lord's Supper together that we're celebrating the great deliverance from sin and death. Are you following me? Every time our taste buds taste, and I know it's grape juice, I'm sorry, but every time you taste, I'm going to say the wine and the bread, Every time we taste it, it's a reminder of that deliverance, just as Passover was for Israel. So here's what Jesus didn't do before his death, right? He didn't gather his disciples together and have a strategy session. Or here's like a church growth session. This is how you're going to do, this is how you're going to, this is how you're going to take over the world. And Peter, you're going to do this. And James, you're going to do this. And John, that's not what he did. He didn't try and pump them up, you know, that they're going to change the world and that God has a big plan for them, Right? He didn't give them a strict set of fundamentals or doctrine, and fundamentals and doctrine are beautiful, but he didn't sit there and give them a bunch of doctrines that they needed to to understand and embody before he left. Jesus had a meal with them. And ultimately what he does here is he instructs them that this is the way that they would continue to remember in the future. So you get to Corinth, the second text that we read, and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper in Corinth, now taking Jesus' words seriously, was a reenactment of the Last Supper. And here's the thing. Ready for it? It was a meal. It wasn't whittled down. And there's church history that shows us. There's a document, an early document in the early church called the Didache, or Justin's Apology is another one, where it talks about the evolution of the Lord's Supper being in homes, and eventually as the church kind of went into Christendom to more mainstream and into cathedrals, it was kind of whittled down to cracker and juice. But in Corinth, it was a meal. And Paul's hope is that when they ate together, it was a meal that marked them as the new humanity. That the thing actually, when you partake in this meal together, when you come to this house church and you join in together, when you eat together, that it would be something that was marked as the new faith community. It was in homes. And Paul is flipping out, as he did often, if you read the Bible a little bit. I love it. It's raw. It's real. He is furious with these people in Corinth because they were abusing the weekly Lord's Supper, the weekly meal together that they had. 
There were a bunch of problems. One, some had gone ahead and devoured the food and the wine. You know who you are. I'm just joking. I'm just totally joking. And one of Paul's issues was is that there wasn't social solidarity within the community. So one of the things in the hopes was in, in Greco-Roman culture, there was huge divide between those who were rich and poor. Sound familiar? And often what would happen is in Greco-Roman symposiums and banquets, even if you went to a wedding in the ancient world, if you went to a Greek wedding, they would rate you from your, in your tables. So if you're the lower end tables, you were typically lower in status and in wealth. And so one of the visions for Paul around the table is that when they get together, this is not how this happens. A lot of what was happening in the church certainly modeled the Greco-Roman way of dinner parties, which was beautiful. I think Jesus had a picture, or a Paul had a picture of that. But he would come down, and he does here, very, very hard because there's not social, social solidarity. That the church, there's something poor and rich, eat together. And you don't go ahead. And so what happened is, even if you excavate, and I did a bit of work on this in seminary, if you excavate a Greco-Roman home in Corinth, Typically, the wealthy homes had two places, a triclinium, which was like a little room. It tended to, you could sit in circles with a select group of people. And then you had the atrium, which would hold like 20 or 30 people. And it sounds, I'm not for sure on this, but it sounds like in Paul's language that part of the division is the rich were coming early. They were eating the best food and drinking the best wine. Typically, those of lower class had to work longer, harder hours, Right? And they would come later, and all the food and wine was devoured. And not only that, they were sitting in separate homes within the house. This, my friends, is why I knocked walls out in my home when I did my renovation, right? No triclinium, no atrium. We're just going to make a level playing ground. You can laugh. It's church, I know. You can laugh. No, can you laugh? Is that funny? No, it wasn't funny. Okay. So here's the thing. Paul is furious at how this community, the social solidarity, the treatment of the poor, the new humanity lives us out completely different. When we eat together, something happens within us that changes the world. It doesn't look like your average dinner party, and that should kind of poke, a, it should prod us a little, even in our own cultural framework of how we do things. But here's the thing, five years ago, so I was doing work on this text five years ago, and I realized something. I realized this. Honestly, as a church and being a part of this community, Paul couldn't get mad at us like he did the Corinthians because there was a couple things happening. We weren't practicing the Eucharist very often and we weren't really practicing meals in Jesus' name. Like the way Paul gets upset with the Corinthians, he couldn't have really got upset with us because we weren't, we weren't really doing it at all. To be honest, like many of you guys, I kind of grew up evangelical, charismatic evangelical, I am so thankful, honestly, for the way I grew up. I grew up in a healthy church, healthy folks, healthy people around me. But the Eucharist, or eating together, eating the Lord's Supper, was something you did like once a quarter, and you kind of had to do it because you, you had to at least do what Jesus said four times a year, right? And I just got the reality that Paul couldn't even get mad at me because we weren't even practicing this was actually a little bit of weight for me. And then as I began to kind of like push into this more and more, it was very clear that pre-Christendom, the way the pre-Christendom church, and what I mean by that is before the church became mainstream, so the letters that we read in the early 
church or the first couple centuries of the church were very like subversive, very marginalized. They met in homes. They were under oppression under the Caesars. That kind of worship centered around a meal together. Like, it, and I, I know we know this, but it wasn't like this. And I'm not, listen, what we read in the scriptures is very descriptive. It's not prescriptive. I, does that make sense? It's, it's describing the way the church has moved. I don't think you pick it up and read and go, well, we all have to meet in homes. I love home churches. I think they're amazing. But there was a sense that as I studied this, there, when you talk about pre-Christendom worship, before the church became mainstream, it was always connected to a meal, always. There was no separation. One historian, Andrew McGowan, he puts it like this. He says this, he says, breaking of bread was not a social event additional to worship, nor a programmatic attempt to create fellowship among the Christians, but the regular form of Christian gathering. What McGowan is saying is there was no primary form of worship in the early church or early Christian community without it being incorporated, it, it, without it being incorporated in a meal. In other words, the Lord's Supper was not something additional like we do in our moment to worship, but was the worship gathering itself. Nod your head if you're with me. You with me? Pretty simple stuff. Like when they got together, it was in a small home, and they would eat together, and they would do exactly what Jesus instructed at the Last Supper as an act of the Lord's Supper in celebrating this new humanity, and it was always around bread and wine. Come on, somebody. This is good news. Then I started to read this guy named Alan Kreider. This guy is amazing, has done a ton of work on the early church. And he talks about, even a couple generations later, like 200 years later, he talks about the early church in Carthage in AD 200. So this is a couple hundred years later. Listen to this. I never do long quotes. I try not to do long quotes because I'll lose you. But listen to this little excerpt from his book. He says this. The primary meeting of the Christian associations was a meal. In this, they resembled the pagan associations, but their secretive quality led to wild rumors. Come on. Their neighbors were suspicious of the cannibalism and sexual license that they thought went on at the meal, and the Christians may inadvertently have encouraged this by calling their meal the love feast, which was literally what they called it, the agape, the love, love. Now, there's a church growth strategy, right? Love right? Love Feast Community Church. Get like everybody from Western and Fanshawe here. It'd be great. <laughs> he goes on. Come to the Love Feast. Yes. Okay. In Carthage around AD 200, these agape meals were the central, listen to what he says. These agape meals together in homes were the central liturgical event of the community. They took place in the evening at least weekly and were occasions on which the community ate uh, sacral food called Eucharist and experienced the intensification of its common life. T Tertullian, who was a church father, reports that these were real meals in which participants ate ordinary, non-token food in the modest qu uh, quantities according to cir uh, circumstance. And in order to meet need, in quotes, with God, there is greater consideration for those of lower degree. So they're taking Paul here, they're taking Paul's advice and saying everybody's brought in even the lowest of status. You hang in with me. Can I continue the quote? Is this okay? Before the meal, there was a prayer of blessing. And after the meal, there was a time of spontaneous worship that may have been a Christian adapt adaption of the Roman after dinner symposium. 
So if you know anything in Roman culture, there was symposiums, so you'd eat a meal at a dinner party, and then you would turn it into kind of like, de- not debate, but like just talking philosophy, answering questions, talking about Greek rhetoric, whatever. So the Christians are now taking this, and they're taking the, the elements of the symposium, but flipping it on its head. According to Christian convictions, he says, no one during the meal was to eat or drink too much, taking Paul's advice, because during the symposium, lucidity might be required of any member who was asked to con- contribute to worship. So don't get drunk at the meal, because you may need to pray or lead worship. I love it. Don't drink too much because you may, you may have to pull out your acoustic guitar and lead us. In quotes, he says, each member from what he knows of the Holy Scriptures, from his own heart, I love this, is called before the rest to sing to God. In this face-to-face setting, the Spirit might empower any member to contribute to the upbuilding of the entire community regardless of their education or wealth. This multi-voiced participation intensified the sense of family identity and gave substance to the notion that the community was the family of brothers, and let's put it in here, and sisters, right? After the prayer that brought the symposium to conclusion, the Christians made their way home knowing that they had dined not so much on dinner, but they dined on discipline. I love that. So these Christian communities... After we see kind of the Bible end as far as chronology, these Christian communities in the first couple centuries, the Lord's Supper, the meal, was the worship gathering, and they would eat together, and then after the meal, they would worship, and some would come with a word, a hymn, a song, a spiritual song, and this is how they practice. It is very clear, I know this is some heady stuff, but it is very clear that the pre-Christendom practice of the Lord's Supper embodied four things. It was a meal, it was in the name of Jesus, in honor of Jesus, so it wasn't just a meal, it was a meal, but it wasn't just a meal, it was in honor or in the name, instead of being in the name of a Greek God or eating under a Greek God, that these meals meant that Jesus was actually present among them. Three, it took place in homes, there was no real estate by this point, and it this meal was not, this meal in the name of Jesus was not an addition to worship or the worship gathering, but was worship itself. You following me? This is just history. I'm just the paper boy here. I'm just telling you this is how it works. Now, here's the thing for me. This has led us on a journey because certainly there's differences between the pre-Christian world, the first couple hundred years after the church, and the post-Christian world that we live in now. For centuries, for 1,800 years, the church was known in something called as Christendom. Since the uh, the emperor, Roman emperor Constantine, kind of the church became mainstream, and you know this, up until, I don't know, 40, 50, maybe 60 years ago, the church was really at the center of culture, even Western society. And things have drastically changed. We're experiencing more change right now, if you're a young Christian in this city, than a lot of people have experienced in a lifetime. And some of you are in your, in your 20s and your 30s. Things are changing rapidly. But here's the thing. I know there's differences between the pre-Christian and the post-Christian world that we live in. But they're a lot similar. They're a lot more similar than they are apart as far as in its comparison to Christendom itself. And one of the things I wonder is this pre-Christian way of worship around the meal, maybe, and this is just me, maybe this is the best expression of worship in a post-Christian world. And we've really wrestled with this. You following me? If this really worked as the way in which the pre-Christian community lived this out, I have a lot of questions how they practice for us now. 
Because let's be honest, things are changing. Like 50 years ago, pastor dudes were like at the center of society. If you go to a small town, they were really, in many ways, revered. Now, like I almost, and it's not because I'm ashamed of the gospel, but when I sit down at a new coffee institution around us, I like sometimes go incognito. I go a little quiet about what I do because I understand, man, things are way different. I open my mouth and tell people what I do, and a lot of times they're like, okay, next, right? It's a different world in which we live. But I wonder if the table is actually this way that we reclaim the pre-Christendom way of worship. It's not just theory. There's actually a story at play here, I think, and it's been developed for years. And it's something in our own community that we've really wrestled with. And so the table, I would say, and we would say, is really a core value around here. The table and eating meals together in Jesus' name is really, it's becoming and has become central to who we are. So we value the table so much in this community. Here's what we commit to do. We're committing to a few things. One, we come to the bread and the cup every week in our corporate Sunday gatherings. Every single week, we come to these little elements, these little broken down elements, the bread and the cup, every single week as an expression of God's love for us. Two, we eat meals together, and we're really encouraging people to eat meals together in Praxis communities as a way throughout the week, and just eating and drinking with your brothers and sisters in community is actually the way in which we believe Jesus builds apprentices and disciples. And then three, we eat and drink. We have this core conviction that we eat and we drink with people far from God. A note on each before we come to the table. You hanging with me? You Okay. First, we come to the bread and the cup every single Sunday in our corporate gatherings. A few years ago, we made this shift because, again, this whole Paul moment, he was instructing the church in Corinthians about how they're doing things. We weren't doing anything. He couldn't get mad at us. And over the last few years, there's been a shift in our gatherings that has moved from more of like a worship teaching event, and we've really tried to push towards a community that's centered around the table. One of the things that we want to do, and I know it's little elements, and I know some of you go, it's just crackers and juice. We'll get there in a minute. But I think one of the things we've been feeling is to take it off a of performance or, or church being something as some form of show that you kind of go to and you sit at. Like how many of us oftentimes treat church as like a movie where you get in the car and it's like, well, that was good. And the the guy up front wasn't very good, right? And like the following, you know, and we just kind of like, great. I, I heard people say like, it was an eight out of 10 or like a nine out of 10. Like it's some Broadway show we go to or something. And I'll just say this. Um, <laughs> if you think about Christian entertainment, we just don't do that great of a job if it, if it comes down to that. And I think we're very aware of it. I mean, Spence and these guys do amazing. You guys do an amazing job. But this is not entertainment. And the wrestling has become especially for a lot of younger churches that want to do really great things, like younger contemporary evangelical churches. There's this desire to do great things and to reach people, but it's kind of turned in a little bit to pop Christianity. And one of the things that we've tried to reclaim is we do, you know, this Eucharismatic vision that we have and we've talked about. We want to do things that are current, but one of the things that we've shifted to is being really rooted in the tradition. And the tradition says that the center of the gathering for hundreds of years before the Reformation was the table. And I just, man, 
There's something that has changed in us. I know people can say it's just bread and juice, but it's this element within our gathering in which we actually practice this. And one of the things that we do when we come to the bread and cup, it's a sign for us that we actually taste salvation. We just don't think it in our heads. And I honestly, I honestly think there's something powerful about the end of our gatherings when we actually rise and we get out of our seats and we move towards the table as a community. It helps us as a community stay centered around Jesus. So we can talk about anything. We can talk about sex or money or power or family and relationships. We can talk about eschatology. Whatever we talk about in our gatherings, the end draws us, no matter what we talk about, towards the table and towards stepping out of our seat and having the bread and the cup together. And so God's not just into us thinking well as a community, God's actually into our senses. He's into our taste and how we sense and feel. And so we've tried to do this in a way that's rooted in our gatherings at the end. But it's, so it's rooted in tradition, but it's also culturally engaging. So it's culturally engaging. We, we're pretty sanitary around here. Can somebody give me an amen? Right? So I go to my uh, Anglican at, at, on, sometimes on Christmas Eve, I'll go to my Anglican parish in my community, and everybody drinks out of the same cup, which is awesome on Christmas Eve. Woo! And um, I love my Anglican brothers and sisters. That's amazing. Um, and I don't wear a robe, you know, and we don't make you come and kneel at the front to take Eucharist. So we're trying to think culturally about how we can embody these practices and still be rooted and rooted in the great tradition, but also doing these things in a way that's somewhat sanitary for y'all. Right, so people often say about the Eucharist and coming to the table every week, is it routine? Oh, it's just routine. I hear this all the time. Yes, it is. And can I just say this for most of you that are millennials? Can I say something? It's just burning in me. Routine is a good thing. Routine, do you brush your teeth? I hate brushing my teeth. Do you brush your teeth? Is it good for you? And there's all sorts of practices. You know, there's all sorts of practices that we speak about routine and it's not bad, but then for a lot... I'm going to start preaching, man. For a lot of evangelical contemporary people, as soon as we start talking about routines and traditions in the church, we flip out, as though, and especially for charismatic people like myself. They have a hard time. But these are actually practices we should even do when we don't feel like it. So I want you to, I want you to hear this morning. When we come to the table every week and you're like, ah, oh, man, like, like it's almost noon and I can, like Massey's Indian Fine Cuisine is calling my name, right? Anybody with me? Um, I still want us to feel that even when you don't feel it, it's still good for us. And it calls us away a little bit just from this idea. For a lot of churches, when we're not rooted in things like Eucharist and certain traditions, what can tend to happen is we, be, we look exactly the same as the world with a few little conservative values on the side. We do exactly the... Light and smoke, so we do everything exactly as the world, but we have a few fundamental beliefs. Yes, we believe Jesus is Lord, you know. We don't embody certain practices, I think, that actually push us to be this countercultural community. So anyways, I say all that to say, we, our hope is, even if you don't feel it at times, that the crescendo of our gathering is we come to the bread and the cup every single week together. And I just want you to think about it, because I know some of you probably think, man, it's just sometimes I feel like a robot, I actually think that's okay. Not that you feel like a robot's okay, but that these, these rituals and these traditions and these things that we practice, even when we don't feel like it, are things that shape us in a deep way. You with me? 
you with me? Okay. Then the second thing is we're just, we're really encouraging. And I know there's a ton of Praxis communities that take different shapes and sizes, so we're not going to push this on anybody. But we do want to be a community that eats meals in community together. Um, this has been a whole journey for us. So the bread and the cup in our gatherings is one thing. Being tabled is one thing. But I've also, we've also been on a bit of a journey in our expression throughout the week and what that means as far as eating together. Because about five years ago, Heather and I, I'm just going to be super honest with you. Is this okay? It's all right. Um, Heather and I, about five years ago, were just evaluating. We had been involved with a lot of small groups. And kind of this has been the thing where you kind of push to that. You know, get in a small group, get in a small group. And the churches that we had been a part of um, had pushed that, and that's amazing. But we were, also, <laughs> we were also getting honest with each other that at times there wasn't a lot of fruit from that. And just evaluating um, the way we were doing things. Listen, it was going okay, but... There were a number of times and a number of communities that we were a part of where at times it just felt cold, just felt cold. And so about five years ago, we had our small group, and it was great. Some of you were in it, and you know exactly uh, you've been on this journey with us. And we were studying stuff, and it was really, like, it was great, but it was somebody's birthday, and we had a potluck together, and it was freaking amazing. People came early. They brought their kids. They brought food. We partied, we celebrated, I think in the name of Jesus. We had a meal in honor of this person who it was their birthday, but as well in the name of Jesus. And people stayed late into the evening. The conversation, the symposium-like, Jesus-like conversation was amazing. And then people went home. And at the end of it, Heather and I were like, my goodness, this is, that was so much, not just fun, like, not like shallow fun. There was something significant that happened here. And then next week, we went back to our business as usual, kind of the cold moments. And it was a moment within us where I remember vividly, and I've told you guys, some of you guys this story, I remember going into the kitchen to her and just being like, man, we've got to do what we did last week. Because there's, li there's life in that, those moments. And so we made the really hard decision to move towards community around a meal together. Now, Praxis communities will take all sorts of different shapes and sizes. I know there's a young professionals community you guys meet. It's, there's tons of great things happening here. But for our story, we have seen incredible fruit from the table, the meal together, being the central part. It's changed our lives so much so that many of you guys know it's literally saved us. So Jesus saved me from sin and death. Come on, somebody. And the table... And moving this way has saved me from myself as an introvert a little bit, but it's also saved me from my preconceived ideas of the church. So the pre-Christendom practice of a meal together or as the Lord's Supper has been a post-Christian practice for us that has really changed us in a deep, profound way. I don't want to like oversell it because it has its moments, but it's been something that has changed us. And I just wonder from reading and, and experiencing and seeing what these communities experienced, if this could be something that we could take on. Again, your community may not do that. That's totally fine. But I just want us to be attentive and aware to eating meals with people who follow Jesus. I want to encourage us to do it. And so there's a community rhythm. There's really simple. We believe that this is actually reproducible. Um, we do six steps of things that help 
um, kind of shape our evenings together, and it's not rocket science, and it's not crazy, but there's been so much life in it. We eat together. We check into community together. We check in as a community. We read the scripture together. There's a ton of kids in, in our community involved, so it's chaos. Come on, somebody. We reflect. We pray. And we play. And as I talk to more people, not just in our community, but outside of our community, I believe that this is actually something that is, is reproducible, that we could all live. It may, may be under the banner of praxis, maybe, it may not, but just gathering together and eating in Jesus' name is a great call on us. So here's a few things that a community meal does. There's a few things. One, you have to eat, right? Just think about it. I think this is what's so beautiful about the intersection of the church and the culture in the first century is you've got to eat together. So why not eat in Jesus' name, right? Two, everyone participates. So we talk a lot about church and participation and, and like we just talk about getting involved and participating in deep and, and profound ways. But here's the thing. In a meal, everybody participates. Everybody participates and brings their best. And it creates this culture of hospi- hospitality within us. You know, oftentimes uh, pastors will get fired, obviously, for sleeping with their secretaries or embezzling money, and I think that should probably happen. You with me? But they should get fired. Did it come out like they should do those things? Yeah, they should, probably should get fired. But here's the thing. Rarely, rarely do leaders get fired, or are they ever held accountable for not being hospitable? And there's actually more in the New Testament that talks about hospitality than those other things. And so this is a culture and a a way in which everybody participates. Three, around the table, connection, conversation, and relationships happen naturally. Can you say naturally? Like there's no icebreakers. There's no trying to get people. Uh, We have seen in such beautiful ways that the meal just lends itself to connection and conversation, relationships where people are growing. Four, you, you get to actually practice the pre-Christian practice of the Lord's Supper. So you get to do what the early church does. A lot of times people say, well, I just want to get back to being like the early church. I think the best way we could do that is by eating meals together. And five, everyone's cared for. It just happens. It's un- Honestly, it kind of happens unintentionally. So in the last year or so, uh, our particular community has walked with, somebody, walked with somebody going through anxiety and depression, We've blessed someone financially in a, in a significant way, really significant way. At Christmas time a couple years ago, we got somebody settled into the city and cared for all their needs. I think like first month's rent and meals and all sorts of stuff, and the list goes on and on. And guess what, guys? There were no clipboards, no sign-up sheets, just people doing life together. And I'm not against clipboards and sign-up sheets. I just think, man, there's something that happens when we eat a meal together in Jesus' name that goes far beyond just eating a meal together. You you remember that quote where it said they, they didn't just dine on the food, but they dined on discipline together? I think this could be the reality for the church in its current moment. And so you may buy into this, you may not. I don't, I don't actually really, you decide that. This is not an impulse to try and get everybody to do what we do, but people keep telling me both pastors and there's been key leaders in this church, you need to share a little bit of your own experience around even this rhythm of praying and checking in and eating and how how this can be done. And honestly, Heather and I have made a decision that no matter where we land, we want to be a part of this thing for a long time, hopefully. But we kind of made the blood oath, you know, like... 
think it's, who is it, Abraham and Isaac, where they put the hand under the thigh, like the Old Testament covenant we made with each other, like blood oath. We said, we will do this until Jesus returns. We will do that. It doesn't matter where we are, we will do this. Strong call to eat with each other. And so one of the things that we did is we have four young kids and lots of bills to pay. We bought a table. And we had a family member who got a custom table made for their home. And the custom table, this sounds like an oxymoron, didn't fit. And really, we had no money, honestly, to invest in a table. And they came to us and said, hey, do you want to buy this for reduced price? And it was this moment where it's like, maybe this should actually be the centerpiece of our home. Instead of the TV or our kitchen being the centerpiece of our home, what if it was, what if it was like Jesus style? What if it was the table? What if our tables in our homes became the most valuable, valuable things in our homes? So we're coming to the bread and cup every week. This is a one core conviction. We're really encouraging people to eat in, prax- uh, in community if you can. And that's gonna take different shape and place. There's so many beautiful things happening since we've launched. So much discipleship happening, book study, all sorts of stuff happening that we're just so thrilled about. But the other thing is this, is we have this core conviction that we will eat with people far from God. You know, all the things said of Jesus you know what one of the most central things said of Jesus was? Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. The son of man came eating and drinking. You know, there's so many other things involved in church life. And it's interesting that this was actually the thing around the Messiah. The son of man came eating and drinking. And Jesus was into eating and drinking so much, so much so that his enemies, who were the Pharisees, the religious people, accused him of eating and drinking in excess. This was, the, this was like the label on Jesus, like the glutton guy, the guy who's eating with prostitutes, tax collectors, all sorts of people that culturally, as a Pharisee, you should not be eating with, and this is what Jesus embodied. Tim Chester says this. We're going to close, I promise. He says the, his mission strategy, Jesus, was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out on mission. Amazing. And I agree. All the evangelism training. You know, we need to have all the ducks in order and have exactly the right things to say and maybe even go down and stand on a street corner and kind of shout at people so that they hear the gospel. What if we just ate meals with people a lot? Because this was Jesus' strategy. And I wonder if he's calling us into the same kind of life. You know, you read Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. So Jesus rises from the dead and he shows up to some of his, his disciples. They're unnamed. We don't necessarily, I think they're unnamed. We don't, they're not the core 12 that Jesus had following him. But anyways, these disciples, twice it says to them when Jesus reveals him, or comes to them and they don't know who he is after his resurrection, twice it says, I think, I think it's twice, through the breaking of bread, that their eyes were opened. Through the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened. And I just wonder, I could be wrong on this, but I wonder even from that if breaking bread is actually the means in a way in which people's eyes are open to the kingdom of God. 
as we break bread, as we open our lives, as we do this, I just wonder if that, this is maybe, maybe this is Jesus' evangelism strategy. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the right things to say at times. I'm not saying that we shouldn't share the gospel, but I often wonder if people's eyes are opened through this connection around the table. So our, our core commitment is this, to come to the bread and cup every single week, to eat in communities as the church, and ultimately to eat with people who are far from God. And here's what I sense. This is compelling. I know we're a quiet bunch, but I sense um, that for many of you guys, I wouldn't say you're on the edge of your seats, but I think as you hear this, for many of you guys, this is very compelling. Because you're wrestling through, how do I be a light in this city? The, the whole, for most of us, the whole world around us has and wants nothing to do with Jesus. And then you actually look into the way that Jesus did stuff. And I understand, this is, this is a compelling call to do what Jesus did. And so the table will always be something central to us. And my prayer is that you just be called in. We always say here that everything is an invitation. Everything, we don't want to force anybody into anything. But I'll tell you one thing, we're red hot with this vision. And so that's why when we do unique and special things, we eat together. We call you guys to bring food and because we feel and sense and believe that something happens when we're in community together. And so take this as you will, but my prayer is that we'd all step in to a life that's tabled with the people around us. And so for some of us in this room, maybe it's just finding people in community, um, just to journey with, to join God in his mission. For some of you, it's that stretch and that call to eat with people um, who are outside the kingdom of God and are not followers of Jesus. And that stretch has been for me the last number of years. As you know, I am married to the mother, literally, the mother of all extroverts who is fueled by people and wants people in our home like every single night of the week. And some of us like, yeah, we want to read books by dead guys at the end of the day. Anybody with me? Come on, somebody. Like the door locked. Um, so I don't know where you're at on that. You're probably somewhere in the middle. But this call to eat with people that are far from God, I think, is a beautiful one. And so I just want to pray for us. And then what we're going to do is we're going to practice. Spence and the guys, we have 10 minutes. Spence and the guys are going to lead us. And I'm not just going to, I want us to practice kind of what we preach here. When we talk about the bread and the cup being very important and central to our community, uh, I'm serious. And I want to take this time, and we want to take these times at the end of our gatherings for you and for us as a community to respond. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to come to the table like we always do. And like I said, you may be in a spot where this just kind of feels like routine. Guys, that's okay. It's okay. For some of you, you've had the kind of week where if it was like socially acceptable, you'd run to it this morning. You'd run to the table because you've experienced God's grace so much this morning and you know how much grace you need that even that as a snapshot of your life, running to the table is basically the posture of your heart. I get it. There's moments where I come in and I'm like, I, need to, I feel like I need to run to the table because Jesus is present within this moment. I get it. I just pray wherever we're at this morning and from week to week that this embodied practice would be something that I'm not just saying would make pra Praxis Church unique, but it would make us unique as disciples because I believe there's a world longing and hungry for the hope of Jesus. And sometimes... Sometimes that's found in things we don't even realize. 